Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Does God ever seem distant to you? Well, no matter how you feel, God is real. To mature your friendship, God will test it with periods of seeming separation, times when it feels as if he has abandoned or forgotten you. But God doesn't leave you. He has promised repeatedly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God admits that sometimes he hides his face from us. This is a normal part of the testing and the maturing of your friendship with God. Job said, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I turn to the south, but I cannot find him. But he knows where I am going. And when he has tested me like gold in a fire, he will pronounce me innocent. So now tell me. How do you praise God when you don't understand what's happening in your life and God is silent? You do what Job did. Tell God exactly how you feel. I can't be quiet, said Job. I am angry and bitter. I have to speak. This sounds like a contradiction. I trust God, but I'm wiped out. Regardless of circumstances and how you feel, hang on to God's unchanging character. He is good and loving. He is all-powerful. He notices every detail of my life. He is in control. He will save me. Circumstances cannot change the character of God. Trust God to keep his promises and remember what God has already done for you. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair shows you how to trust in God with a reminder to remember his promise to you, I will never leave you. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Today, One of these days I'm going to tell you I'm doing lousy because people say to me, Archbishop, you, he always asks you and you say you're doing fine. Well, I am, actually. Well, the day that you tell me you're not doing so well is the day that we invite everybody who's listening to pray on your behalf so that you do oh, better. Oh, well, I need prayers for a lot of things all the time, whether oh. I'm feeling well or not. Well, then let's ask for those prayers, not only for you, but for me as well. We both need those prayers. In turn, we promise our listeners prayers as well, don't we? Absolutely. A bishop is obliged to pray pro popolo in Latin for the people. I have to offer a Mass every week. One of my Mass intentions is pro popolo, for the people. And, and, and I think that if a priest is serious about bringing his parishioners along, the priest is going to pray for his people as well. Well, pastors are supposed to offer pro popolo Masses too. We haven't talked a lot about that in recent years, like so many things, but that is an important aspect of well, it. Well, anytime, anytime you want to talk about something, Archbishop, you're able to, to bring it up. So let's talk then today about what's called Energize Day. It's a day set aside for a person who never has time to do something for themselves. If you could do anything that you wanted for a day, Archbishop, something that you rarely ever have time to do, what would it be? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I can't think of anything. I mean, I feel that I, um, obviously, we have to balance work and some leisure time and, and time to, to rest a bit. But I don't, uh, I don't have any screaming desire to do something that I'm prevented from doing at the moment. Do you think that you do a good job at balancing work and leisure time then? 
Yes, I, I think I do. And, of course, my work, uh, my ministry is never the same. You know, I can mm. go a couple of days where there's only a few administrative things to do or office things, and then all of a sudden I'm out and about and have all kinds of engagements. This coming week is very busy. Mm. Uh, there, there are just all kinds of things. Uh, this is getting to be a very busy season. You know, for, coming up is the, going to be the... Um, a gala uh, for Saint uh, for, for Trinity Health that I always go to. Of course, that will have taken place on Saturday, the twenty third. So that's done. Uh, the Connecticut <clears throat> uh, uh, Men's Conference, mm-hmm. uh, the Hartford Bishops Foundation Golf Classic, the uh, Hope's Dinner, you know, for uh, charity, and then I have to go for the Thomas More Award Ceremony for Saint Thomas More. Center at, at Yale, our, our uh, ministry there. And then there's an annual jubilee for religious men and women, mass and reception later in the week. So you see those all those are big things that are coming up that are interspersed with the regular things. So this is going to be a busy week. And therefore, it is important for you to take time out for yourself to energize yourself so that you can fulfill all these responsibilities as adequately as possible, right? Well, we all have to balance things yeah. out. Now, the general opinion about work is this. No one wants to do it. So in hopes of bringing happiness into the workplace, International Week of Happiness at Work was created. And that exists tomorrow, September 25th. Starting tomorrow and lasting through the week, happiness at work is a priority. This special day itself became an initiative towards bringing people from all over the world together to be happier at the workplace. Besides giving everyone raises, do you have any tips as to how to keep morale high in the workplace, Archbishop? Well, first of all, let me say that I, I, I'm not sure I agree with the statement that uh, people don't like work. I think uh, there are situations of the, the setting in which they have to work or the kind of work they're forced to do that might be unpleasant or not satisfying. But I think most people who are uh, well balanced in their in their life, uh, find satisfaction in their work, mm-hmm. um, and of course that doesn't mean sometimes it's not uh, pressing or more difficult than others. But I think I mean, what would we do without work? Work, uh, you know, Pope Saint John Paul wrote a, a a beautiful letter on this about the value of work, and um, I, I think that uh, it's a matter of uh, finding work that suits your your abilities work where you feel you're making a contribution to something. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe it's just working on a part in a factory that has, is part of something bigger. But if, if, it, if it's contributing toward something good, well, then that's satisfying. So I don't know. I, I think that uh, today there's a lot of uh, expressions of dissatisfaction with people's work. But I think that that's tied more to the fact that our human relationships right now and our own sense of self-possession and of being settled in life for a lot of people is disrupted and it's not settled down. And I think that's, and I I dare say a great part of that is also spiritual, the spiritual malaise of Mm. a lot of people that also flows out into uh, other aspects of their life. So, um, you know, our patron of Archdiocese is St. Joseph, who's also the carpenter and the workman. Jesus himself uh, was known as the carpenter and carpenter's son, um, you know, whether it's manual work or intellectual uh, endeavor, 
whatever it might be, uh, I, I, the work is, is, is uh, meant to be something redemptive. It's not meant to be some uh, awful thing. And I think since, since this day is called International Week of Happiness at Work, I, I think it's critical that we look not only at the place of work for Americans, but in other countries the world over. I'm sure they don't have it as well as we do, and in, in, in work becomes more of a labor issue, a slavery issue, as a matter of fact. Well, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I mean, I, certainly there, we have the developed world, and then we have the developing world and, and countries that are poor, etc. So clearly some people uh, find work very grueling because of the social conditions in their, mm. in their countries. Other countries, not just the United States, have a more developed and uh, uh, equitable and, and, and uh, balanced kind of, of life. But again, I think uh, apart from that, which is foundational, you know, it's what we bring to our work and the kind of people we work with and the kind of people we are that is very important. And I, I just think there's so much contention today in society and so much anger, not about everybody, but among a significant number of people that's making uh, the workplace very tense in some respects, you know, and um, people's expectations. And I don't know, emotionally and psychologically and above all spiritually, I think that people have to find a healthy uh, place uh, in their life uh, for interacting with other people, not just in their own families and friends, but in the workplace as well. And tomorrow is also National Family Day, a day intended to allow loved ones to take a break from their daily lives and spend quality time together. This day gives us a bit of leisure time outside of our normal routines to reconnect with family. How important do you feel a solid family unit is to the success of a child? Well, it's absolutely essential, even though, sadly, in this fallen world, sometimes things don't work out the way we will. We would like them to, and sometimes, you know, th- there's loss, there's uh, suffering, there's, there's medical problems, there can be marital problems, there are poverty problems. But human beings, with God's help, are meant to, um, to weather these storms uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way, not just by themselves, but through all of us and through society trying to intervene where appropriate and when and how to, uh, to address those kinds of needs. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't at least make mention of the fact that Tuesday is the birth anniversary of Pope St. Paul VI, born Giovanni Battista Montini in 1897. And I say I would be remiss because Pope St. Paul VI is the Pope that ordained me. Moving on from that, however, let us look at Wednesday, which is the feast day of St. Vincent de Paul. He was a French priest, co-founder of the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, renowned for his compassion, humility, and generosity. One of the ministries in the Archdiocese of Hartford is the St. Vincent de Paul Society in Waterbury, operating a soup kitchen, supported housing, mental health programs, their homeless shelter, one of the largest in the state. How important is this kind of work to the true identity of the Church, Archbishop? Well, it's essential. And, of course, St. Vincent de Paul is a very interesting person. He's one of those larger than—I suppose every saint is larger than life, but he really looms large uh, in France uh, in his time. And uh, he, he not only is he associated with charity and given his name to so many charitable things, but to seminary formation, uh, the renewal of the priesthood. He was 
quite a remarkable man. If you ever go to Paris, perhaps you have, or mm-hmm. listeners, on the uh, left bank there uh, is the the. It's not a very uh, uh, the church down as you walk by. It doesn't look very uh, impressive. It just fit into the facade of a lot of other buildings, although inside it's quite beautiful. And that's where he's buried above the altar. His his body is preserved investments in a in a glass case above the above the altar. But uh, anyway, getting back to the substance of the matter, he uh, we ask his patronage from heaven and his intercession, and we take inspiration from his example for. Uh, particularly for the care of the poor. So the St. Vincent de Paul Society and uh, those things that are named for him often uh, engage in that kind of work. Well, since tomorrow is National Family Day, I've picked out this particular quote from Pope Francis's homily delivered on October 22, 2013, and it's called Families Who Pray Together. Then I'd like to ask you to comment on this. Pope Francis says, I would like to ask you, dear families, do you pray together as a family? Some of you do, I know, but so many people ask me, how? Well, we have to be like the tax collector, humble before God. Each one of us needs to humbly look to the Lord and ask for his goodness, for him to come to us. But how do we do this as a family? After all, prayer is so personal, and it's never the perfect time. There's never a quiet moment in families. Yes, this is true. But it's also a question of humility, of recognizing that we need God just like the tax collector. All families need God, all of us. We need his help, his strength, his blessing, his mercy, his forgiveness. And praying as a family is simple enough. It's very simple. Saying the Our Father together around the table is not something extraordinary. It's easy. And saying the rosary together as a family is very beautiful. It's a source of great strength. You can also pray for one another. The husband prays for the wife, the wife for her husband. They both pray for their children. The children pray for their parents and their grandparents. Everyone prays for one another. This is what praying in the family means, and this is what makes a family strong. Prayer. Archbishop, your thoughts? Well, certainly everything the Pope said is very clear and uh, fundamental to uh, the faith, to family life, to what the Church believes about the family. You know, the Church, the Catechism, I think the Second Vatican Council, too, referred to the family as the domestic church, mm-hmm. that uh, the f- father and a mother and the children uh, and even the wider family, and in those families where one or another of those are lacking, it's still true that um, this is a place uh, uh, that's meant to be like a little church in the sense that uh, we're united uh, in faith. First of all, that faith is very important. And the practice of the faith, and as the Pope says, prayer, and also, I dare say, outreach. We're talking about St. Vincent de Paul and the needs of the, of the poor, that the, that the family is not just uh, inward-looking, but also outward-looking. How can a family uh, together, not just individually, contribute something to uh, helping others? And it might be through the activities at the parish or through some organization or whatever, that's all part and parcel, because if you can't, I mean, if you can't do that at this particular level of the family together, how are you? How are we going to be able to do it at the parish or the archdiocese or or as a, a community? Mm-hmm. You know, so we the church always focuses on the uh, the most basic level of things. That if you don't have things as the basic level, you're not going to have it at the higher level. You could say that even an individual person, if it doesn't begin with individuals, then it's not going to happen uh, collectively. In, in a world where 
families are finding it difficult to even sit down at table and eat with one another. I'm wondering how many families actually take the time to pray together as a family. Well, it's a good question. And I dare say I don't I don't mean to be scolding or anything, but you know, if families don't eat together, well, I understand all I see it all the time that the reasons why, but as we always say, you have to when it comes to time, you have to make time. Uh and it seems to me that if a family is determined, if parents are determined to find uh, to to be together for for some meals, etc., well, they just have to make it happen. You know, we we I think today we all feel that we're being tossed about by the world and the media and by uh, this f- frantic uh, activism of of being running all over and being on our cell phones and all. Well, that's a hard thing to overcome. But I think people have to make the effort to do it, you know. Uh, absolutely. So it's, we're not absolutely helpless. If, if, we, if we take a stand within the context of our own little world, our own home, our own family or something, I think we can, we can, we can accomplish something good. Let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this 24th day of September when the Church celebrates the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time. Our Gospel reading for today is taken from the 20th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And after this dramatic presentation, we'll ask for your thoughts, Archbishop. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To them he said, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. So, Archbishop, this is a parable that most of us, if we were the first ones hired that day, spend all day working in the hot sun as opposed to those hired just before quitting time, we too would say it isn't fair. What's the point here? Well, this is not a parable about distributive justice. It's not about uh, work as such. It's a parable. It's a symbol of something that Jesus was trying to tell his uh, Jewish listeners that, yes, they were the first called. And so they had, through, th- through thick and thin, after, and many times only after coming to their senses, after they'd fallen away from the Lord, as the Old Testament tells us, they're the ones who, who 
bore the heat of the day, so to speak, through the centuries uh, uh, in the religious faith. And now Jesus is saying that the Gentiles and those who are latecomers, or even on a more individual level, those who are sinners, who are now being, you know, called to repentance. Uh, you know, the, the people who say, Lord, since my youth, I have always done everything according to the book. Well, the, the story of the prodigal son, you know, uh, the, the prodigal who runs off and squanders everything and lives a dissolute life, and the older brother who is faithful and has done all his work, and the father throws a banquet when the young son comes home. It's the same idea here, uh, but, uh, but on a different level, that uh, the Gentiles, uh, eventually, uh, Christ has come for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. So even though they are late in the day, so to speak, in, in human history, of, of receiving the mercy of God, that nevertheless, uh, they, th- th- this is God's uh, generosity toward all of us. So the kingdom of God is open to all, not just the chosen people, and God is not cheating anyone. Is he not free to do as he wishes with his mercy? Let's take a look now at some of the questions that have been submitted, Archbishop. This is from Bobby from Simsbury. Bobby says, in the book of Genesis, God says man is good, yet the Catholic Church says we are born with original sin. How can both be true? Well, Bobby, if you read Genesis, it says that, yes, uh, everything God created was good, but uh, it wasn't God that turned man away from him. It was... uh, Adam and Eve through the story of the uh, temptation of the devil and the forbidden fruit uh, that uh, what this is teaching us is that since we have a free will because we can't love without a free will if we would be robots if we didn't have free will so we have free will and uh, Adam and Eve chose to to sin so uh, and we are as their descendants uh, have this brought upon the whole world this is the way of uh, explaining a profound theological and uh, human truth, that God, who is good, created us and the world to be good, but by the misguided use of our human freedom, we have chosen, we are fallen. We are a fallen race, that we we are inclined to sin, and that's the whole story of redemption uh, in Christ. So the whole point of Genesis is to explain how it can be that God, who did create us as good, how it can be that we have fallen into sin. Carl from Simsbury says, I heard on the news that a federal judge ruled that deferred action for childhood arrivals, known as DACA, is illegal and has also barred new applicants to the program. Since 2012, the program has prevented the deportation of hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to America as children by their parents without legal documentation, while allowing them to also work, go to college, get health insurance, and a driver's license. What does the Church teach about the rights of immigrants and refugees and about the rights and responsibilities of the nations they are immigrating to? Well, Carl, the Church teaches two things. The Church uh, recognizes, always has recognized, the right of a nation-state to regulate its own borders. There's a certain legality that can be established for that. But the Church also teaches that people do have the right to, to migrate and that nations should welcome immigrants. Uh, And of course, for the United States, it couldn't be more obvious that, except for the Native American peoples who are here, we're all, almost all of us, then are the descendants of immigrants who came to the United States. Today, we have uh, the modern uh, problem 
that uh, we have many people fleeing across the border in the Americas into our own country. So what the church says is, yes, the, the United States has the right to regulate its borders and to have laws uh, regulating these things, but those laws uh, should provide for legal immigration into the country and should be generous in accepting immigrants who come here. DACA, very sadly, you know, so many of these young people have come here under the wings of DACA, but now it they've been here for years. They're established, and, and uh, there's a threat that uh, they can be declared illegal. So this is also a terrible injustice for people to come under one set of legal assumptions and then years later be told, well, no, this... Oh, this we're, we're changing our mind, and you, you, you're your persona non grata, you know. Mm. So the, it's really sad on and on both sides of this argument about uh, immigration in the United States. And of course, it's not just a question for our country, but many others too. You have to balance these two things, you know, the, the right of a nation state to regulate its its borders, and also uh, the the need to a- accept and recognize that immigration is is. Uh, a valid aspiration on the part of peoples. Our country has done it in different ways. You know, back in the 19th century, uh, your ancestors and mine, and most of the people who are listening to us, uh, our ancestors poured into the United States from Europe because there were no restrictions on immigration. Then in the 1920s, uh, I think it was the early 20s, a law was passed setting quotas for immigration from Europe. And so the, the influx was greatly reduced. Now today we have a new influx of peoples wanting to come from Latin America, for example, or other places. It's sad that we cannot balance these two goods together in a responsible way in our polit- among our politicians today. It's very sad that, that, that we don't have a solution yet, and I don't see at the moment where any solution is, is going to be quickly arrived at. Jen from Glastonbury says, In the Bible, Peter makes it very clear that Christians will suffer, just as Christ did. I'm curious how we Christians suffer in a first-world country like America where we are not physically persecuted for our beliefs. I don't think I have ever really suffered for the sake of Christ. Feelings get hurt on social media. There's a cultural pushback, of course. But I've never lost anything of value in this world due to being a Christian. Does this make me weak or a lazy Christian? Or should I simply thank God for the rare peace I have enjoyed in this age? Well, Jen, each of our lives is different, and uh, the, the plan that God has for our life and the path that we walk is different. So, for example, I'm a Catholic bishop, and the challenges I face in today's uh, secularized and increasingly hostile cultural world toward uh, Christian teaching and morality is still not the same as a bishop in China right now, or some other places, or even in Latin America, where some of these dictators, you know, have thrown bish- bishops into prison mm-hmm. for being bishops. So, or under Marxist communists, you know, uh, after World War II, you know, a a huge number of the priests uh, of Poland uh, died in uh, Nazi concentration camps. I don't think people know that, that uh, Dachau, uh, I I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but uh, literally thousands of priests were sent there. And of course, we know Father Maximilian Kolbe, a saint, died there. But I'm just saying that I don't want to get off the track here, but simply that we never know uh, how we're going to be put to the test. And sometimes forms of discrimination, persecution can be very subtle. Sometimes it doesn't force us to do something, but it renders us silent. 
that we don't say anything because we don't want to cause trouble. We don't say anything because we don't want people to think that we're that crazy Catholic who's opposed to uh, assisted suicide or abortion, that kind of thing. Just imagine in the political sphere. Now, I'm presenting here from party politics, but just in general. You know, if you are really a staunch practicing Catholic or a Christian believer about certain fundamental things, there are a lot of things going to be closed off to you. In your life, I, I'm, you should thank God, bless God, that you haven't been put to the test, so to speak. You know, that's a great ending of the Our Father. Lead us not into temptation, sometimes translated as put us not to the test. But we all have to be prepared always to, to prudently but bravely say and do what we need to to give witness to our faith and to be a good example to other people and to lead them uh, along the right path. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Heavenly Father, you give us all the grace we need by our baptism and confirmation, by our reception of the Holy Eucharist, by our prayer, through the intercession of the saints. You give us the courage we need and the enlightenment to know and do what is right. And so we pray that in a moment of trial or temptation, we may not falter, but we may be firm in, uh, in a loving way in upholding all that is good and true for the sake of our world and for the sake of uh, our neighbor. Uh, we ask you to bless us, to bless our local church of the Archdiocese of Hartford, and may Almighty God bless all of you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. Excellent program. We look forward to joining you again next Sunday at the same time. Until then, enjoy this week, and I hope you get a chance to relax a bit. Thank you. Thank you.